Well, thank you for being here this evening, and we thank you for coming back, those of you who have been here three Sundays in a row for this series. And tonight we're going to wrap up the uh, mission field next door and the call, what's next? And so I was thinking about what it was like as a child in the community that I grew up in. And one of my very earliest memories is getting into my dad's old 51 Ford and driving in the little town in Meadville, Pennsylvania through the fifth ward to the fire hall. And it, I still remember the brick, uh, the brick paving there. I think I maybe was four years old. And my dad you know, got his Bible out in front of the fire hall. He waved to the guys at the Silver Dollar Saloon across the street, said, come on over. And my dad stood there and with his Bible and a bunch of tracts, he preached. And he preached to these guys and invited them to come to church and to talk with him or to pray with him. And that's what he did. Another early memory was being with my dad and handing out tracts on the street corner in Meadville. And it was a startup church. Uh, I think they started in, in 1953. And we first met in our home. And I still, another early memory is helping to set up folding chairs in our little living room and then having church there on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening, and then we'd fold up all the chairs and stash them in a couple of closets, and that's how we did church. Now, as you've probably noticed, we do church a little differently now than we used to, don't we? We have great sound system, good, good uh, graphics. We have smoke machines sometimes. We even have drones. And while... That's okay, and I, I have nothing against any of the technology and feel blessed that we have it, but the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ remains the same however we spread it, and that is the key issue, I think. Sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in the trappings or the technology or what's new and what's available to us or the newest song or the newest, the newest style of doing things. That's all good as long as we stay focused on what is the gospel that we are preaching. After the over the past two weeks in this series, the mission field next door, we've explored initially some of the landscape, and I gave you some statistics about some of the things that are going on here in our country. We've also looked at some common excuses. We did that last week that uh, some of us fall into, and I hope in the intervening time you've maybe looked at yourself and thought. Maybe I use some of those excuses from time to time because we looked at scriptural refutations of those as well. This evening, I'd like to go over a few things you probably already know. And uh, I'm not apologizing for that, by the way. I think sometimes, if you're like me, I need to hear things a thousand times before it really s settles in here and here. And so this evening, you're going to hear some things that I hope are familiar that might stimulate you to take some additional action. We're going to look at three mission fields right next door that need our attention. First of all, our homes, and that's a loaded one. I could speak all evening about it. It's going to be brief, I promise. Our community, and that's our neighborhood where we work, all of that. And then right here at Cedarview Community Church, our church family. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture, just read it now to sort of set the stage, and then we're going to come back to this Scripture towards the end. Um, this is John 13, verses 33 to 35, and this was just before Jesus was about to be crucified, 
and, uh, and uh, he's speaking to his disciples, they're believers, and he's preparing them. So he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we're going to come back to this later. As I said a minute ago, one of our big mission fields is our homes. Psalm 127, 1-5 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Now, we could go on and extrapolate a lot of things from the scripture, but the thing that I wanted to pull out just for tonight is that the psalmist reminds us that the Lord is the builder, and unless the builder is the one who is watching over things, the watchman is wasting his time trying to stay alert. That goes for us as parents in our homes. God needs to be at the center of our home life. And I know that for most of us, we like to think, well, he is, he, and God's at the center. But it's not just for your family, by the way. It's for those people who come in to your home as guests or the guy who's there to repair your dishwasher. I remember reading in a book a few years ago of a man who talked about his conversion experience, and he said, I was in a Christian home I wasn't a Christian, and I overheard the husband and wife having a discussion about Jesus and about salvation, and he said, I never talked with them about it, but it planted a seed, and later on, I became a Christian, and that was the first thing that came in into my heart, that conversation. So the question I have for you is, are the, quest are the conversations in your home the sort of thing that if someone was overhearing it, that it would speak into their lives and it would get them interested in the gospel? Or are they the conversations that might say, these people aren't Christian, they don't really know God. Jesus told us that we are to seek, and I've said this the last two weeks as well, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be added to us we have to come back to these first things first. So is your home a place of worship? I certainly hope so. When others come to visit, would they experience the presence of God in your home? If you have young adults in your house, do you engage them in rigorous but cordial debate when they bring up opinions or ideas that they brought into the home that are counter to God's word? And can you do this with curiosity, warmth, and love. Oh, I know it's hard sometimes for us parents. We can get dogmatic and it's easy to start yelling or raising our voices. I, I had a grandfather who, when I was a teenager, kind of terrified me because I went to visit him in Virginia. And this is one, the last time I saw him before he died. And he 
sat at the kitchen table, and he didn't like the fact that my hair was touching my collar. And he pounded on the kitchen table, like with his fist. And he yelled at me that the Bible said more about the wrath of God than the love of, than the love of God, and I needed to remember that. Now, did my grandfather hate me? No. In fact, he was a very loving man in much of the time. But that stuck with me, and I can tell you it did not, it did not engage my interest or curiosity. It pushed me away, and it was, it was a very detrimental thing to my walk with God, I can tell you that. So when we speak with others, anyone, a loved one particularly, are we being curious? Are we engaging them with them in a useful way? So be curious, listen, ask questions. As long as there is open discussion, there's an opportunity for you and me to witness into the lives of others. It doesn't mean that we're going to change people's minds quickly, overnight, but we are to show God's love and mercy in action. We're, to, we're required to do that. And sometimes we just have to keep planting seeds and keep hoeing and keep working at it. This is a big topic. We could spend hours on it, as I said, but how can you spread the good news more fully in your home? How can you be more effective where you live? Are you doing everything you can? What more could you be doing? And are the behaviors you have as you speak to others and engage with them that you need to modify or stop? One of the things that I remember is talking to somebody not that long ago who said to me that he could tell that God was present in his home by the way his parents talked to each other. When his dad was impatient, his dad tried to do it in a soft tone of voice, didn't raise his voice, didn't get angry. And when his mother was upset about something, she sometimes just left the room until she calmed down and then came back. We need to learn these strategies. These these are actually ways in which we witness to our families. And uh, anyway, I'm going to move on. Our communities is another place where we have a mission field. And that might be the place you work. It might be your neighborhood. Do you work in a secular environment or do you have neighbors who don't know the Lord? It may be that you do. It may be that some people you know are actively hostile to your Christian faith. I've talked to people who've experienced that. They might be caught up in the wokeism that's so prevalent today in our society, and perhaps you're pressured to buy into gender ideology or take courses about your personal privilege or about preferred pronouns, and you're being pressured to use those. The list goes on, but there's lots of things in our environment that pressure us. If this occurs... How are you going to respond? Can you do it graciously and in a godly way? Or do you just meekly comply, thinking that after all, it's just a seminar or a workshop or one little thing that they require me to do? I hope instead you're standing firm in your faith, not only in word, but in deed. And I I know that's not always easy. I recently spoke with someone who 
chose to speak up to take a stand in his place of work. Some of the political correctness had been demanded of him. They wanted him to take a bunch of seminars and to sign some sort of an agreement. And it was a really good job that he had. He'd been with this company for quite a while. And after some prayer with some brothers in Christ, with his family and his children, they listened to his concerns and they gave their opinions. He went to his boss and he simply said, I'm not going to comply with that because it's against my religious beliefs as a Christian. He was asked to resign. And so he did. And he started praying for a job in a Christian organization. And a couple of months later, he got hired in this new job, which he now loves. He's been there for a year or so. And he said to me, I'm not making nearly as much money as I once did, but I love this job. It, it's, it, I feel like I'm doing God's work. He delights in his ability and his and opportunities to share the gospel. Jesus has told us that there will be opposition to us and to our Christian stance, but it's not the opposition that is the issue. It's being prepared, you and I, for that opposition and our willingness to march ahead in spite of it. There are other issues in our communities. I live in Bradford, and within walking distance of where I live, there are eight cannabis stores, and they're all legal. This is a change in our society. This is a place where you can buy a drug that has known problems psychologically and physiologically, particularly for young people, but also for older people. Uh, more recently, a magic mushroom store opened on the main drag selling psilocybin mushrooms, and they, it was called Fun Guys. And when I started writing this, they were open for business, selling something that is illegal. On Wednesday, when I was driving home from work, coming, leaving the church and driving home, I noticed that there were three cruisers outside the place, and the door was wide open, and the cruisers were there for a couple of hours. And I read in online that uh, the young woman who was running it, 37-year-old woman, had been charged with possession, with trafficking, and holding illegal substances. And today, as I left home to come here at 4 o'clock, all the signs are gone, and the place is gone. And thank God for that. I'm very grateful. But I do want to remind you that the enemy is afoot in our communities. And by the way, that store has moved around from Toronto to North York to Bradford, and it'll pop up somewhere else because there's political activism around all of that. We need to speak up and educate our kids and our neighbors about, about alcohol and drugs and, and the, the problems that are there with them. Drugs are a major issue, by the way, in this country. There are 20 opioid deaths alone every day in Canada. And these, by the way, sometimes are uh, drugs that people are given as prescriptions after surgery, and they have a very high street value. And so anyway, I'm, that's, that's something that's very close to my heart. I think as Christians, we need to be vocal, and we need to be vocal in, in uh, attractive ways. I, we shouldn't be yelling and screaming at our mayors and our 
and our counselors and our chief of police and, and our MPs and MPPs. But we need to be vocal. We need to speak up. And because I can tell you as somebody who worked in a political office for a number of years, politicians actually listen if there's enough noise. And the reason they listen is they want to get elected again. And uh, that's, that's part of, uh, that's how they keep their job, right? They get elected again. So speak up. We're to be salt and light as we do it. And then we also need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray and pray and pray some more. Pray that they will be guided to do things that are godly, that they will be led to good ideas. Another major challenge in our communities is the homeless. And that's such a generic term, the homeless. It's like there's this weird group over here. But in fact, the homeless are real people. These are image bearers of God. These are people created in God's image. And they, for some reason, have nowhere to lay their head at night. A lot of times they have empty stomachs. They're hungry, frightened, frequently uh, friendless. And while many of these folks could be mentally ill or addicted or fallen on hard, hard times, they need help. And they need the gospel, too. They need the Lord. We have opportunities to witness in word and deed to these folks. I know a couple from this church that used to go, and I think they still do, they go downtown to Regent Park, and they buy a whole bunch of sandwiches. And they walk around and hand out sandwiches, and they pray with people, ask, what, what do you need prayer for? And they lay their hands on them, pray, pray for them. And somebody said, you might be thinking, well, I'm not brave enough to do that. That's frightening. But in fact... It's something that needs to be done. I've done that a few times and stopped and prayed with people and bought them a sandwich and sat on the sidewalk and chatted with them. And one of the things I can tell you is they're people. They're human beings. And everybody has a story. And sometimes these stories are heart-wrenchingly painful. But you and I have an opportunity to reach out to these people. You can go downtown Newmarket, on the main drag, there's homeless people there. So what are you going to do to engage these people? Ask them questions about their lives. They're valuable ways to engage, and this is a way that we can begin to reap souls for the kingdom. The kindness you and I show to the indigent, the broken, the hurting, and the lost is not wasted. You may be surprised how this enhances your life as well. Last summer, my wife Janet was walking up Moore Street in Bradford, and there's a little food bank there. And as she walked by the food bank, this big, tall, unkempt-looking, kind of wild-eyed fellow uh, stepped out from beside the food bank, which was closed, and started saying some sort of erratic things to her. And Janet, God bless her, just walked up to him, and she said, What's your name? And he said his name. My name's Michael. And she said, Michael, do you need somebody to pray for you? And so right there in the street, Janet stopped and prayed for Michael. And he was brought to tears and wanted to talk with her, and they chatted for a while. And later on, uh, Janet introduced my son William and me to Michael, and we got to chat with him and pray for him a couple of more times. I haven't seen him in a while. But these are opportunities to serve and to help. We need to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 to 40, And this is a very familiar passage. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. We have opportunities to do this, and we need to be doing it. A friend of mine, a guy, guy named Gord, keeps some $10 Tim Hortons gift cards in his car and in his pocket, jacket pocket. He also buys, a, by, by the case, Gospel of John books. And when he sees somebody that's homeless, he will frequently just hand them a $10 gift card, give them a Gospel of John, ask if he could pray with them or chat with them. And... Uh, it's, it's meaningful to people. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me. We have comfy homes and we can shower whenever we want. And if we're hungry, we go to the fridge and grab something out of the refrigerator. Our laundry gets done or we do it. But for some of these unkempt people that you might see on the street, we have to remember that they're loved by God. We don't judge that book by its cover. One thing that really helps me is to remind myself that everybody I meet was once somebody's baby. And if I do that, it, it helps me see them through a different light. Also remember that God loves them. And one of the things I know is that God has loved me when I'm at my very most unlovable. And we are required to do the same for others. We need to be compassionate. We need to recognize that people have pain and suffering in their lives. Excuse me. And that you and I know the one, the one, who can redeem and transform their lives. And how will they hear if we don't tell them? You can't share the good news by crossing the street or looking the other way or pretending that you don't have time or that they don't exist. Number three, the mission field, is the church. And I think it was interesting that um, Chad spoke this evening, or this morning rather, about the need for unity in the church. And so I'm, we didn't plan this out, but I'm going to uh, reaffirm that this evening. There are huge opportunities for us to spread the gospel of Jesus right here at Cedarview Community Church. There are ministries here from the nursery to prime timers, where we can, and every age in between, where there are volunteers needed. Many of these groups need volunteers, and there are lots of opportunities to serve. I always think of, of Blast Camp in the summer and all the children who are introduced to the gospel there. What a wonderful thing. Children from the neighborhood who don't know Jesus at all. If, if you can only volunteer for one week, volunteer for that week. 
Earlier, we read from the Gospel of John chapter 13, and I want to come back and have a little closer look at this scripture. Little children, yet will I, uh, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one another. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, believers. He knows he's soon to be betrayed and crucified, that he's leaving them physically. And in his beautiful little book uh, called The Mark of the Christian, it's only 60 pages long, Francis Schaeffer focuses on this text of Scripture. And he reminds us that Jesus is giving his followers, which then would include all of us, some important instructions. When we love one another within the body, the way Jesus loves us, we're showing the world and those who don't know him what it means to be a Christian. This comes back to how we treat each other in the home, how we treat people on the street. When people see how we treat one another as Christians, it's a litmus test for non-believers. It's a witness to them. So it's important for us in the church to do this. And I know it sounds lovely and wonderful and, you know, love one another, yada, yada, yada. But that's not just a happy feeling. Because I don't know about you, there's times that there are people who love me when I'm pretty unlovable in my attitude or my behavior. That's probably not true for any of you, but you know people, right? So, so how do we make this love visible to others? I think there are some things we need to stop doing. There's a lot of them, but I've got three that I want to talk about. And there's three things I want to mention that we need to start doing or start doing more of. First of all, we need to stop gossiping. And Christians are so good at this. You know, so I walk up to Chris and I say, Chris, this was said to me in confidence, but, you know, I know you're a prayer warrior. And so I'm going to tell you something about Ron. Now, he told me it was in confidence, but I'm going to tell you about because I want you to pray for him. So just pray. But, you know, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody else. Do you know that that's a violation of trust? Unless somebody has given me permission to pass that on or to ask somebody else, that's gossip. And it's couched in nice terms. And we as Christians are really good about at that, aren't we? Wouldn't it be better if I just say, Chris, Ron needs some prayer. Just pray for him. I don't need to give any more detail than that unless I've been given permission to do so. And the reason I say that is there are people in this room who have issues with trust. Your trust has been violated in some way in your lifetime. And so when somebody, even well-intentioned, violates your trust, it causes you to feel that that person is untrustworthy and that it's not safe for you to talk to somebody. It's one of the reasons that uh, we, we uh, when we sit down with somebody in one of our offices here to have a conversation, whether it's Janet or me or Chris or, or Pastor Don or any, anyone, uh, Pastor Chad, anyone else on staff who's doing some counseling or chatting with somebody, that we, we keep it in confidence. Because we want you to feel safe, that, that you're heard, 
but you're also respected. Gossip is toxic, and it can make people feel unloved and uh, hurt and vulnerable. It builds barriers rather than bridges. Ask yourself before you divulge something someone else has given you as personal information. Will sharing this with another help or hurt the situation? And will it help or hurt the relationship? We also need to stop forming little cliques. And, and I understand we like to sit with our families. We like to come to church with them. We have our friends that we've known for years and years and years. And I'm not saying that we ought not to be part of each other's lives. That's not what I'm saying. And we like to sit with them and we like to chat after services and make our plans. And I don't think this is inherently wrong, but how much time do you spend looking for the new person in the lobby or the new family or the mom with the kids or the dad with the kids? How frequently do you walk over and introduce yourself and welcome them? How frequently do you engage them in conversation? Let them know that you're glad to welcome them here to the church, to this house of the Lord, and that you'd be happy to direct them to a Christian ed class or to blast or to the prayer room. Now, I know someone here is probably saying to themselves, yeah, but isn't that what those people are supposed to be doing? They're wearing the welcome shirts. That's their job. Yeah, Enrica and Julius, that's their job. Well, actually, I got news for you. We're all on the welcome team. Everyone in the room, we're all on the welcome team. As a Christian, as someone who attends Cedarview regularly, isn't that what you're for as well? As part of the body of Christ? And you might say, well, I'm shy. And I just reply to that, get over yourself. Who cares? It's not easy for most of us to go up to new people that we don't know and introduce ourselves and welcome. That's hard work, but it's required of us. It's showing the love of God for others, and it's an opportunity to meet friends you don't know yet and show the love of God in action. I can tell you that there have been people who have introduced themselves to me here at this church or that I've introduced myself to over the 10 years that I've been here that have become dear, beloved friends. And if I would have just walked past and gone to the one or two people I knew, I wouldn't have had those friendships. And I know, I know many of you do this. Please understand, I'm not trying to be harsh with you, but it's a reminder that there's more that we can do. When Janet and I first came here, there was an older couple that came up to us one day and said, we'd like to, they introduced themselves. I had no idea who they were, knew nothing about their background. They introduced themselves and then invited us out for lunch and they took us out for some Thai food, which was a big hit with me right away. And we had this lovely lunch and I got to know these people and I got to know a bit about their background and their history as Christians and they were so encouraging. It was, it was a lovely, lovely gesture. Something else we need to stop. Self-righteousness and the critical spirit that seems to go with it. A good scripture to remember in, is this. Psalm 14, 1-3, and it's also echoed in Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, no, not one. That includes you and me. We are flawed and broken as the next person. When a brother or sister falls or struggles, rather than giving in to that critical spirit 
and maybe the gossip that goes with it too. Why not just reach out to them, pray for them? Don't be a Pharisee, be a friend, be a light, engage them, help them. I could add to this list, but uh, time is passing. And I want to remind us of three things that we need to do to express the love of God to one another uh, here in the church. First of all, if you've harmed somebody, apologize. If you've wronged someone, caused dissension or hurt or misunderstanding, don't wait for the other person to come to you and think to yourself and rationalize, oh, they'll get over it. Go up to them and just say, I'm sorry. And you might be saying, that sounds easy. I don't know about you, but saying I'm sorry is sometimes one of the hardest things to say, isn't it? Because our pride gets in the way. If we say I'm sorry, those words hold great weight, particularly when they're not held down by justification, rationalization, and being qualified. Just say I'm sorry. I was wrong. Secondly, if you have something that you're concerned about with a brother or sister in Christ, go to them and speak to them directly. Just do it kindly. Do it lovingly. Do it graciously. Instead of yapping about it to everybody else. I had somebody come to me complaining about somebody else a few weeks ago, and I just said, did you talk to that person? And the, the response was, should I? I said, yeah, I don't know why you're telling me. Talk to them. Clean that up. I had an experience recently where my communication could have been better. And someone who was involved in this came up to me. And very graciously, and I could tell that this person was a bit nervous about doing it, they let me know that they were disappointed and upset by what I had done. And I don't like being reminded, by the way, of my failures as a human being. I, I can remind myself easily enough. But I was grateful to this person for having the courage to come to me directly. And this showed, I think, spiritual maturity as well. And there was no gossiping or backbiting or going to other people about it. it was, this person came to me. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for them, but they did it, and it was gracious, and I appreciate it. Thirdly, make it part of your ministry to step outside your comfort zone. Invite others to church. Greet newcomers and get to know them like I've already talked about. Invite newcomers to join you for lunch. Volunteer in some way here at the church. And if you're thinking to yourself all the reasons you can't, and you weren't here last Sunday night, I suggest you go to our YouTube channel. I know that the lesson that I taught last Sunday night on excuses is up. Pastor Chris assures me it is, and I saw it today. So go have a look at that. We need to be outside our comfort zone. It's so easy to just be in a routine. I come to church every Sunday, and I come to church twice, and I go to Wednesday night groups, and I go to other groups during the week. What else can you do? How else can you be involved? And how else can you show the love for the body and for one another in the body 
that you haven't done yet. As we wrap up this series, there are two important things I want to just close with. First of all, numerous times in the Bible, Jesus is described as having compassion for those around him, those to whom he ministered. And importantly, each time he experienced this compassion, he took action. For example, in Matthew 14, 14, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. You may recall that later, that same passage, he feeds 5,000 people. Um, He had compassion for them. Compassion is not a passive emotion. It's completed in effective action. As Christians, we need to keep this in mind. Otherwise, we are deluding ourselves with nice, fuzzy feelings and nothing else. Christianity is far more robust than that. Secondly, remember, and I think this is key to all three of the teachings I've done, we are helpless, you and I, to change anything by our own will or strength. No matter how much compassion we have and how much we want to serve, only by the power of Jesus can lives be transformed for his glory. Jesus reminds us of that in John 15, 5. I love this passage. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus calls you and me to serve him daily, and we can only do it through the power we have through our relationship with him. What are you willing to do with that power that flows through you because of your relationship? Where is he calling you to serve? Will you take action? Friends, please don't delay. We live in a world that desperately needs a savior. And God is calling us to serve. Let's pray.